Well, amen. Good to see you this morning in the house of the Lord. Beautiful day that God has given us. Of course, every day is a beautiful day, right? Because it's a day that the Lord has made. We are going to, let me get this to work, there we go. In our study of Ephesians so far, we have studied two of our three points, in at least the, the eulogy, the first part of Ephesians. The three points, again, are planned, purchased, and preserved. That God, meaning God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, planned and purchased salvation for His adopted sons and daughters. God planned salvation from the foundation of the world before the world was ever created. Before the words, let there be, were ever spoken, God had planned and secured for all of eternity those whom He would save. This, if you remember, is called the covenant of redemption. The covenant between the members of the Trinity, the Father plans, the Father plans salvation, the Son purchases salvation uh, through His blood, and the Holy Spirit preserves salvation. Known to us in time and space where we are as the covenant of grace. God's grace poured out to us. Today we're going to look at the third and final point of uh, the eulogy found in the book of Ephesians. We'll look at see, we'll see how God through the Holy Spirit preserves our salvation. You know, that is the next logical step. We should, God is logical in all that He does. It's only logical if God plans salvation, if God purchased salvation, that God would therefore preserve salvation. He wouldn't just let it be, oh, well, you know, we kind of got this far, so he's not like, uh, you know, renovating a kitchen or something, and he gets, you know, "Ah, know, this function's good enough. I'm not going to finish it the rest of the way. No, God finishes what he starts. So I would ask you again to stand, pray with me, as we would read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Again, let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. We thank you that your word makes it abundantly clear to us that we are secure, absolutely secure, because you made a promise and you swore by your own self because there was no one greater of which by to swear. And in that promise, you entered in once for all into the holy places. You made atonement for sin. And sit down at the right hand of the Father. You are indeed our anchor for our soul. You are the one who carries us through in this world. Till you bring us to our forever home with you. So we thank you for what we have in Christ Jesus today. May it be the desire of our hearts may be the object of our worship. For the glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. It's the word of the Lord. May He add His blessing to it. You may be seated. Today, as we look at how God, through the Holy Spirit, preserves our salvation... We're going to do so as we have been doing through careful study of the words of the text so that God speaks to us through the preaching of his word. We want to hear what God has to say. We're going to focus today on verses 11 to 14. It says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have obtained an inheritance. Eklathromeian. Appoint by lot or determine by lot. Now, lest we should think that God is in heaven, when we hear the word lot, we think of casting lots. We should think that God is up in heaven rolling the cosmic dice, as it were, and if uh, it lands on your name, you're in, and if it doesn't, you're out. That's not what is happening. And even if God were rolling the cosmic dice, as it were, the scripture tells us the lot is cast, but the outcome is from the Lord. There's no way around the fact that God is sovereignly in charge of salvation. We should also not think that there's anything left to chance. Chance does not even exist. It's not even a thing. It's a no thing at all. Chance does not exist within God's world. We were, uh, the TV was on the other day in our house, and and, uh, I was in the kitchen, and my wife said, can you look at that? And there was these people out in uh, the Arctic on paddle boards, of all things, watching glaciers, and it's absolutely stunning. Beautiful. I would love to be there myself one day. And I just thought to myself, can you imagine seeing that and saying this all happened by chance? I mean, like, how can that possibly be? Nothing is left to chance in God's world. I'm going to recommend to you again my absolute all-time favorite sermon. It's not by me. It's by Dr. R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. You can look it up on their website, Legionnaire. It's entitled, Nothing Left to Chance. Nothing Left to Chance by Dr. R.C. Sproul. So then what does it really mean that we have obtained an inheritance? That's all one word in Greek. This is what it means. It means, in whom the lot has fallen upon us also, as foredained thereto. 
The idea expressed here is that Christians have become heirs of God due to the fact that God predestined them according to His purpose. In a manner of speaking, the lot fell to believers not by chance, but solely because of the gracious and sovereign decision of God Almighty to select them to be His heirs. Makes me think of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Do you know that you have a beautiful inheritance if you are in Christ Jesus? The lines for you indeed have fallen in pleasant places. The word obtained here, though, is in the passive form. And that really matters how we look at the word. The verb tense makes a difference in how we understand things. Because we have been saying, and we would translate it in our Bibles, uh, uh, that um, God is our inheritance. But when a passive comes in, the question becomes this. Who is actually the inheritance? Do we receive the inheritance or does God receive the inheritance because God took us to be his own? You understand what I'm saying? You can say, well, it's both. Contextually, though, with the word, it actually goes one way. Those who are in Christ are God's inheritance or God's portion. That is what it's saying. We are God's portion. We are the ones that God has marked out for Himself. This is absolutely in line with Scripture. God tells the children of Israel, I chose you. Out of all the people on earth, I chose you. Not because there was anything special about you. Not because there was anything great about you. There's nothing special and there's nothing great about you or me. That God would say, whoa, holy mackerel, I need that person on my team, right? This isn't the major leagues. God chose a portion to be His. This is how God is beginning to build His church. In Deuteronomy 32.9, we read this, But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. Jesus said that He's going to build His church. And God's church consists of the elect from all time. If God chose you to be His portion, you, at a point in time and space in history, chose to follow Jesus out of your own free will. Not a single person who was elected to be God's inheritance will be left out. Not a single one of us will be left out. If God chose you, if God casts a lot, and the lines for you have fallen in pleasant places, there is not a chance in the world that your salvation could ever come to an end. It's absolutely impossible if it's the work of God. If it's the work of you, absolutely you can use it. You can, you can lose it. But if it's the work of God, it is impossible to be lost. Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What great comforting words. When it seems like God has forgotten you, when it seems like, man, life is just too hard and too tough, and we ask ourselves, and as we do in times, where is God? 
Where is he? No, he has not forgotten you. He has not cast you out. If you struggle with the idea of God's sovereign election and salvation, I want to read to you again what Ian Hamilton says of how we are to look at this mystery of God's sovereignty. The Christian's concern should not be how to puzzle through the mystery of God's sovereignty, but to bow and worship before the sovereign God who loves us and gave His own Son for us. This is something you should memorize this next line. Put it in your heart. It's a truth. Divine sovereignty is never presented to us in the Bible as a puzzle to solve, but as a comfort to cherish. Divine sovereignty is never presented to us in the Bible as a puzzle to solve, but as a comfort to cherish. Paul has made it clear to us, and really the Holy Spirit has made it clear to us, that God is sovereign over all of salvation. We have obtained an inheritance. We are God's own possession. And in order to strengthen his point of being God's portion, Paul uses the word predestined, thus doubling down, as it were, on the truth of God's sovereignty over all of salvation. Look again what it says. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestined me is porizo. It means to decide beforehand, to preordain. Imagine that. Before the world was created, before you were ever born, before I was ever born, before anybody who was in Christ Jesus was born, you were marked out by God. You were preordained by God to be in a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we had read in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Many struggle with this truth. The last place you should ever go to study this truth is the internet. The first place you should go to study this truth is God's Word. Let God define the terms. Let God tell you what He has to say about these things. Is there a divine tension in this? Absolutely there is. But is it a divine truth? Absolutely it is. We know from verse 4 why God chose us from the foundation of the world, that we are to be holy and blameless in Him. In verse 9 and 10, we're also told that it is for the purpose of making known to His children the mystery of His will in Christ Jesus. In verse 11, we're also told another reason for why God sovereignly chooses an election. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of of his will. The purpose of you and I being elected if we're in Christ Jesus is that it was the will of God. It was the counsel of his will. 
And here we have the two wills of God. If you remember going back a few sermons, there's two wills for God. Thelema and Bulema. And here, the desirous will of God and the declarative will of God come together. The word counsel is the root of Bulema. It's bule. It means plan, purpose, intention, or determination. The counsel, God's determination, and God's will, His thelema will. Remember what that definition is. It's not to be conceived as a demand, but as an expression or inclination of pleasure towards that which is like that which pleases and creates joy. If you are in Christ Jesus, God gets joy out of you. His joy is on you. He chooses you because It makes him happy. When it denotes God's will, it signifies his gracious disposition towards something used to designate what God himself does of his own good pleasure. And so here we have God's determinative will and God's desirous will come together in the counsel of his will. And what God has determined before time began will come to pass The counsel of His will will work out all things, as it says, so that His will is accomplished. Everything that happens in time and space, everything that has happened in history, when I say time and space, I mean history. History is going to come to an end. History began with let there be light, and it's going to end when Jesus Christ returns. Within that time span, everything that has happened on the earth, and I mean Every single thing was all for the express purpose of God's will being brought to fruition. You know, we can fight against God. We can fight against His will. But it is absolutely a futile endeavor. I like how F.F. Bruce states it in his commentary. His will may be disobeyed, his desirous will, but his ultimate purpose, his bulema, his declarative purpose, cannot be frustrated. For he overrules the disobedience of his creatures in such a way that it subserves his purpose. I love that. His will may be disobeyed. I can choose to ignore God and be a disobedient child. I can choose to reject God if I want altogether. But God's ultimate purpose cannot be frustrated. He overrules the disobedience of His creatures in such a way that it subserves His purpose. In other words, everything that happens, God shapes and moves to make His will happen. That's exactly what's going on. God sovereignly rules over the universe. If you want a great book about the sovereignty of God, a heady book, but a great book, The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. It's a fantastic book. I would encourage you to read it. Paul's laid out strongly, beyond dispute, the fact that God is sovereign over salvation. Then Paul takes those who are saved, he breaks them up into two distinct groups now. Look what it says in verse 12. God did all these things from verses 3 all the way to 11, and He breaks those, what God has done, into two distinct groups of people who benefit from what God has done. 
He says in verse 12, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. We who were the first to hope. It means to hope beforehand. It it means to anticipate. It's the only time in Scripture this word is found. Scholars debate about this. My personal belief is, and I think it's rather clear, that what Paul is speaking about is the Jewish people who were the first to hope in Christ. Because Paul was the first to hope in Christ. Paul was a Jew. We read in the book of Romans that the Jewish people were given the oracles of God. Remember Paul in the argument, he says, What benefit there is of being a Jew? Much in every way, for they were given the oracles of God. They were given the law and the prophets and the Psalms. That was given to the Jewish people. Salvation is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And out of those two, he creates one new called the church. The prophets were told, Peter tells us, search and look diligently for the scriptures for the coming Messiah. Hebrews chapter 11 is all about those who hoped in Christ before Christ even came. Those who were the first to hope in Christ, Paul says, might be to the praise of his glory. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of His glory. We're going to come back to the phrase, to the praise of His glory. It will have a greater depth of understanding for us when we understand that God has sealed our salvation with the Holy Spirit. That's what He says in verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation preached to you. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing is by the word of God. Nobody gets argued into the kingdom. Nobody logically deduces, well, this must be true, therefore I'm going to believe. No. You hear the word of God preached to you. The Holy Spirit enlightens your mind to the truth, and you respond positively to the gospel of your salvation. It is all the work of God. In Him, you also, the separating of the groups, you also, you Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Notice the process. Hearing, then believing. We're sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. The third part, hearing, believing, sealing. We're sealed. Spraghizo, right? I think I'm Italian up here. Spraghizo, huh? Uh, Seal, secure, enclose, mark for identity or possession. How many of you in your office... Write your name on your stapler. Right? We understand this con. This is mine. Or if you put your lunch in the corporate uh, refrigerator, do you put your name on it? Sometimes it doesn't matter. People don't care, right? You know what? When God puts his name on you, 
Nobody's going to touch you. Nobody can. God says, this is mine. The devil, the spiritual forces, they may try, but they will not succeed. They are under the sovereign rule of God also. The seal of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee from God that our salvation is secure and unable to be lost. Christ has purchased it with His own blood and seals it through the Holy Spirit. That's what He says in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It is a guarantee. It is the guarantee of all guarantees. Many of us have probably had somebody make a promise to us, and they never followed through on it. You go into a bank today, and right there by the teller, it will tell you that all the money in your account is backed or guaranteed by the full faith of the United States government. Do not believe the United States government on this. Are they backing it? Yes. Can they fully? No. No one can make a guarantee like God can. All other guarantees fall short. God's never will. Ever will. It is impossible for God to fail in this. It is impossible for God to lose those who are His. He guarantees you that if He saved you from before the foundation of the world, if He purchased you by the blood of His own Son, you are guaranteed to be in heaven. The word guarantee is Araban. Sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. It means first installment or down payment. I like that. First installment or down payment. The late James Boyce, and I encourage you to listen to anything that that man has to say, is like a down payment on a purchase of a property. He is proof of God's good faith and in earnest of the full amount to come. We might ask ourselves, how is the Spirit a guarantee of our salvation? How is the Spirit a guarantee of our salvation? How do I know? Because sometimes I don't feel like it. Well, He's a guarantee of our inheritance because, first, the Scriptures tells us in Romans 8, 16, that if we're in Christ Jesus... And even though I may have doubts at times, may I, I wonder uh, and, and get lost and confused and then focus on myself. When my focus is wrong, I wonder. When my focus is right, I don't wonder. But the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 16, that the Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That gives me hope. It guarantees me, you know what? I am God's. I do belong to the Lord. Despite what I may be feeling, despite the circumstances around me, I'm God's. I've been marked, I've been sealed, I've been branded, if you would. God has promised that He will bring us to Himself one day. God has promised. And if God makes a promise, 
God keeps His promises. Peter says that is the hope of which we are to set ourselves fully on the grace that is to be given to us on the day in which Christ Jesus returns to receive His bride. His bride, the church, which consists of those whom God has sovereignly elected. Verse 14 again, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Till we actually acquire possession of it. Till we are brought into the presence of God in a transformed body with a full mind to understand all who God is and all that will be real, all the glories and the greatness that heaven has to hold. Till then, You and I struggle in this world. We struggle with sin, and we are tempted. We are tempted at times even to quit. We are engaged in the spiritual battle. The Scriptures tell us later on in Ephesians, when we get there, which will be months and months from now, that we know that we are in a spiritual battle, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. The battle is real. And the role of the Holy Spirit in the cosmic battle is to preserve God's children until He redeems His holy possession bought with the blood of Christ. This is what we call, in theological terms, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. That God is going to preserve you if you are in Christ to the very end. Let me be very clear here. Well, no, I'm gonna, no, forget it. I'm going to jump ahead of myself, and I don't want to do that. How do we know this? Well, again, where should we go to find out this truth? Scripture. Scripture is its own interpreter. Jesus tells us this in John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Okay, so who gave you eternal life? Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And... They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's secure, isn't it? That's security of the highest you can get. You know, we got the Federal Reserve Building over there in Rutherford. It's secure. I would not suggest you try to go in there and just take what you want. You will die. That's secure, and we look at that and go, wow. The security that we have in Christ Jesus, absolutely unpenetrable. Absolutely, the greatest security you could ever have is the fact that you are secure in Christ Jesus, that you are in the Father's hand, you are in the Son's hand, no one can snatch you out of it. It says, my Father who has given them to me. Who gave you to Jesus? The Father gave you to Jesus is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or as Paul says to us in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Clearly a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. But then Paul lists things that we may possibly think will show us, you know what? God's forgotten about me. 
I'm abandoned by God. No, you've been adopted. In love, you've been adopted by God. He does not abandon you. He will not abandon you. In fact, God cannot abandon you because it would go against his very character. And God cannot go against his character. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes I think they may. I feel like they may. Key word is feel, not know. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Again, one of the strongest no's in the Greek language. No. In all these things. So, actually, picture it like this. So, Paul is talking to somebody, and, 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 and this person is downcast. They're upset. They're sorrowful. They're worried. They're fearful. They're upset. And he's saying, and Paul says to them, shall, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Coming alongside and counseling somebody, saying, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And you ask him, and you sit there, and their face is downcast, and he goes, No! Whoa! No! In all these things we are more than conquerors with Him who loved us. For I am sure, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Who's going to take you out of His hand? Absolutely no one. If you are in Christ Jesus, your salvation is guaranteed. And it doesn't mean that I say a prayer at some event somewhere and I'm good for the rest of my life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Salvation is guaranteed, but it does not mean I sit back and wait for Christ to return. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means that we are to use the wisdom and the insight of which God has lavished upon us to search and to study the Scriptures so that we are striving to live a life pleasing to God. And this is part of the way in which we confirm to ourselves that we really are the children of God as we learned in 1 John. I can tell you for certain because the Scriptures Tell me for certain. And the scriptures tell you for certain that God is not going to plan salvation before the foundation of the world. Have his son take on humanity and shed his blood for the potential of salvation. It's not going to happen. God has guaranteed salvation. And so the better translation of verse 14 is this who is the guarantee of our inheritance until God redeems His possession to the praise of His glory. It should be one. There you go. Who is the guarantee of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until God redeems His possession to the praise of His glory. The response to God planning, purchasing, and preserving salvation should result in the praise to His glory. 
should result in praise and worship to God. Our salvation, which was planned from the foundation of the world, purchased by the blood of Christ, preserved by the Holy Spirit, should cause us to say that in Christ I have all that I need and so much more. I was driving to Walmart, surprise, surprise, uh, the other day, and on the radio came a song, which I haven't heard in a long time, a song by U2. And uh, I like U2. I like their, really, their older stuff. But anyways, the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And uh, I'll be honest, I turned the volume up a little bit. In 1987, that's the year I graduated high school. So it was a popular song. But I was struck by the lyrics again. In the song, he says, you know, I believe in the kingdom to come. And then he says this, he sings this, the lyrics are this, You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, of my shame. You know I believe it. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe that's a majority of Christians. I believe this. I know this. But I don't have a happiness. I don't have an inner peace. I don't have a joy. Because I believe that, but I'm really looking for something else. My identity is here. My happiness is here. It's not in the fact that God planned, God purchased, and God preserves my salvation. No, that can't be it. And I would ask you today, is that you? Is that me? Do we we really believe the truth of God's plan, purchase, and preserve salvation? Are we lacking joy and peace? As the old, the old, the ministers of old say, look like some of the saints have been baptized in lemon juice. Right? If you are, It's because, in essence, you are saying that God's salvation is not enough. Your identity is not found in Christ alone, but Christ and a title, Christ and abundance, Christ and a spouse, Christ and blank. When we are there, when we're in that place, and we all go there, we've all been there. We're not to live there. We're not to let it define our life. The Psalms are replete with David being there. But when we're there, we need to, as David says, as the psalmist says, when we find ourselves downcast, as Psalm 42, 11 says, Why are you downcast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The attitude, the thinking of the purchased child of God is not looking at our situation and being downcast and saying, oh man, it's so bad, oh. No, it should be that of worship despite circumstances. Just like Paul and Silas in the midnight hour in the inner Roman prison. What was there to be joyful about? Circumstantially, nothing. Spiritually, 
everything. They were joyful because they knew that they were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, planned from the foundation of the world, preserved by the Holy Spirit, till God receives them as His inheritance. That doesn't mean that we enjoy suffering or heartache or any of the other human things we have to endure this side of heaven. Doesn't mean we look forward to them and want them and have to have them. Or not to have to have them, but you know, we're like, don't feel bad also if it's like, you know what? Life is hard right now. Life really stinks right now. I'm having a hard time and I'm really struggling to focus on my joy and my hope. Trials and tribulations on this side of heaven need to be viewed through the lens of God's eternal salvation. The result will be that even in the worst of circumstances, and that's not to take away from anybody's circumstance, that we will find God to be a joy and a peace. We'll have a joy and a peace because I cannot be plucked from His hand. Because nothing can separate me from His love. And so when the diagnosis comes and it's not good, okay, but one day, One day, I'm not going to hear the word cancer. One day, I'm not going to hear the word abuse. One day, I'm not going to hear the word whatever it is. Put it there. You're not going to hear it. As my favorite hymn says, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. And had shed his blood, his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. To do this means it is to believe that God is really working all things according to the counsel of his will. That his plan for me is not to harm me, but to give me a future and a hope. And He has because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And so the only response to this amazing truth is worship. Worship. Worship consists of obedient living, rigorous study, rigorous study of God's Word, heartfelt praise. This is what should define the adopted child of God. That is what it is meant by to the praise of His glory. How can our response be anything but? If God has saved me, God has purchased me, God preserves me, that no matter what, I can have an attitude of worship. I think of Job, who literally was attacked by Satan himself. You know the story. He lost it all. Lost everything. And the Bible tells us that he tore his clothes. He put ashes on his head. He was weeping. He was mourning. And he bowed to the ground. And he worshipped.
Because in the end of the book, he says this, I know my Redeemer lives. That's the very point that Paul is going to bring out in the rest of the book. May we, loved ones, be to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such a great salvation. May we not neglect it. May we cherish it. May we study it. May we love it. May it cause us to grow ever closer 